We, we've always believed in the inherent dignity of children to change their world. It's what World Vision was founded on. Discipleship changed my life. And he was actually my boss. Mm. <laughs> he was my boss at Procter & Gamble and smart and ambitious kids who, like me, have all the odds stacked against them, right? Mm. And really, they're full of potential, they're gifted, and they just need an opportunity, someone that would believe in them. So when we pray for the kingdom of heaven to come to earth, we're also praying for the beauty and unity of the diverse body of Christ right here on earth. In other words, diversity is in our heavenly destiny, but why wait? Why wait? Is the power of ownership and is the power of uh, accountability. By building trust, they, they get to understand and believe that we want also the best for them. Well, Edgar, welcome to the ECFA podcast. We're so glad that you could join us. Thanks, Michael. It's my honor to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Good. Well, hey, you have become uh, not just a partner in the work at ECFA, but honestly, a friend. And as we were uh, sharing even before we hit the record button here today, I said the only difference, Edgar, is that now we're actually giving people an opportunity to listen into the conversations that we're, we're already having as friends. So I'm looking forward to the time together. Absolutely. That sounds great. All right. Well, this is uh, at ECFA what we call the Behind the Seal podcast, where we get to go behind the scenes, not just at ECFA, but also in the friends and the partners uh, like you who are so important to our work here at ECFA. And Edgar, one of the things that I've just really appreciated in get, getting to know you is, is your personal story and what God has done in your own life. It's such an inspiration, honestly. And I want to go uh, behind the scenes for a moment, if that's okay. And many people know you as the leader of World Vision, or maybe they've heard about your success in the corporate world. But I want to go all the way back to that young boy who is growing up in Central and South America. Tell us about your journey and really what was your motivation uh, for this incredible life that we'll get the opportunity to learn about on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Michael. And again, what an awesome uh, honor to be part of the Behind the Seal podcast with ECFA. I, I have to go directly to my mom. No doubt my mother was the driving force in my life as, as a young boy. She was truly the rock upon which I built my very unpredictable young life. She gave me vision for what was possible and supported me every step of the way. And uh, I start with her because she passed away this past summer. Mm. And so I have had a chance to reflect about her life and her impact um, on me. And it was just profound. And I'd just like to give you some, some, some more background. I was, uh, I was actually born in Los Angeles, California, to immigrant parents. But when I was very, very young, we moved to... Central America in Guatemala, and then South America in Venezuela. When I was a teenager, uh, my family fell on hard times, and sometimes we did not have enough food uh, on the table. And so when I was 18 years old, I packed everything I owned, which wasn't a lot, into my dad's green U.S. Army duffel bag. He, he had served in the U.S. Army um, you know, years before. And so I packed everything in his uh, duffel bag, returned to the U.S. I landed in New York City with just $50 in one pocket, my American passport in the other pocket. And oh, by the way, I couldn't speak the language because when I left, I was like three and a half or four. And uh, 
they only spoke Spanish to us at home. <laughs> and, then I, and then I grew up in a Spanish speaking country. So yeah. coming back to the US at 18, I describe that experience as being an immigrant in my own country. And I can tell you mm. if you're interested, so pretty amazing stories about that experience. But that was that was the beginning of my uh, US experience. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah, that doesn't surprise me in some ways too. Like I feel like so many of, uh, we, we can all look back and thank uh, that that father in our lives and mothers in our lives, kind of those bedrocks, uh, just uh, supporting us along the way. I mean, my goodness. Yeah, let's, let's though pick back up where you're in the United States. And I know one thing is you came in, in part pursuing education and there were some setbacks, some roadblocks, but tell us about what God did, how you overcame those. Yeah, so, so my dream was to become an engineer. That's what I wanted to do. And uh, but I had to put that sort of dream on hold uh, initially, at least to keep a roof over my head and food on the table. I, I literally just took on a bunch of different minimum wage jobs. Uh, but I have to say the most memorable of them all was at a Burger King. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and so, so imagine this because of my poor English, they actually I don't understand why they put me to work the grill. That's where the you know, uh, where we get the orders right from the patrons. But back then there were no monitors. Okay, so you just relied on these, you know, not very um, good speakers where the cashier would call the order into and then I just had to have my ears wide open to make sure that I was making out what they were asking. And I gotta tell you, uh, I often couldn't tell if it was hold the cheese or double the cheese, right? So, <laughs> uh, or, or extra pickles or no pickles. So. You know, in hindsight, and I joke about it now that I can, I think I was the inspiration for Burger King's slogan and campaign, have it your way, because I fulfill <laughs> all those orders my way. <laughs> <laughs> that puts a whole nother spin on it, doesn't it? <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, and as I was as I was working at the Burger King, I enrolled in a community college um, and, and took some English as a second language courses to, to get familiarized and comfortable with, with the language. Eventually, I was accepted to Rutgers University but uh, in New Jersey, but the admissions counselor um, on, on the day of the admissions, my first day in school, told me that my test scores were not good enough for the engineering school. And uh, so this was a huge disappointment, disappointment to me. I tried to explain that um, English was my second language, that I had taken the, the SAT test and I, did, I, I didn't finish that test. <laughs> it was hard getting through a test like that, uh, uh, you know, with, without fully understanding the language. I even told her, I, have, I was already accepted to the best engineering school in Venezuela before I came back. Well, she looked at me and said, hey, why don't you study sociology? <laughs> <laughs> Plot twist. <laughs> yeah, and so I did. I did, but I didn't let go of my dream, Michael. And, uh, you know, when I graduated in 1989, it was with a bachelor's in sociology, yes, as the good counselor advised me, but also with an engineering uh, degree and a minor in math. And uh, I learned later earned an MBA from the Wharton School of Business. And that's what, uh, where after, after Wharton, I started uh, my career with the Procter & Gamble Company. As I reflect back on that conversation with the, uh, with the admissions counselor, I found that just God's hand all over, um, all over that chapter in my life because 20 years later, 
the dean of the College of Engineering at Rutgers University asked me to come back and deliver the commencement speech for, uh, for the graduating class. And when Rutgers University celebrated uh, 250 years as an educational institution, they named me as one of their 250 fellows, which was a tremendous honor. But again, to God be all the glory. Yes, amen, brother. So, yeah, you had some uh, natural motivations, but certainly God's hand is clearly uh, was at work in your life, is at work in your life. That's so awesome. All right, so Edgar, you were just getting to that part of the story. Yeah, it does get really interesting here, too, with some of your corporate background and experience and the doors that God is opening. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and also how has God used that even now in your leadership at World Vision? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first thing that I would have to uh, that reflect on, Michael, is how everything that happened in my life, particularly in my early years as a, as a young man, um, as I said, I can see God's hand preparing me for the future. Um, whether it was experiencing hardship as a teenager when at times there wasn't enough food to eat, that just gave me a, a whole new level of empathy for the many vulnerable children around the world that World Vision serves today, right? Where, for mm -hmm. whom hunger it's just a daily reality, right? Um, and also, I know from my own experience later as an adult that they need more than just physical help, but also the hope of the hope of Christ. Then coming back to the U.S. by myself, speaking no English, being broke, having to work minimum wage jobs. Well, that helps me understand the feelings and relate to the feelings of millions of refugees and displaced people that, again, World Vision serves around the world. But probably the most, I would say the most powerful feelings that I, that I feel is when I talk to smart and ambitious kids uh, around the world who, like me, have all the odds stacked against them, right? Mm -hmm. And really, they're full of potential, they're gifted, and they just need an opportunity, someone that would believe in them. And so that's, um, that's what I would say is the, the preparation as it relates to then um, now serving some of the most vulnerable children around the world. That's good. And you're so right. There, with God, there's really no experience that's wasted. Um, and so thank you for allowing him to use that work in your life as you minister. And uh, allowing is a key word, I think, too, Edgar, is just as I've gotten to know you and a little bit more about your story, too, is I think about surrender just being a really key aspect of that. And I know that relates to just how you ultimately gave your life to Christ, um, but just these moments of surrender along the way. Tell us a little bit about that. There was a, a very critical inflection point in my life where uh, for many years before that inflection point, as a result of my life experiences, I vowed to take control of my future. Things will be done my way, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, back, then, back then, I was truly striving for what I call earthly success or the American dream, if you would. But then came the, my surrendering to Christ. And I began to think about living not my way, but God's way, pursuing lasting impact as opposed to only temporary success. And, uh, and that's ar around that time is when God called my wife, Lisa and I to World Vision. And I realized in that discerning process, do I go to World Vision? Do I not? Do I stay in my corporate career? What we realized during that discerning process, because it was truly a, a decision that um, I, my wife Lace and I made together, was that the, if I wanted lasting impact, 
the authentic pursuit of lasting impact requires courage, requires to give up some things. And but it's the kind of courage that can only come from being to your point, to your to your word, fully surrendered to God's will. When we so it, it's it's is that this upside down world of Jesus Christ, right? There's courage in surrendering when you surrender to God's will because you know that He will go before you. And so that's that was a significant uh, part of my journey to to world vision. And, and it started it, it my surrender to Christ really started in my corporate career. That's where I met. Um, you know, just so after graduating Rutgers, spent a couple of years with the General Electric Company and then went back to school, got an MBA at Wharton, and then I joined Procter & Gamble. I spent 20 years with the Procter & Gamble Company before coming to World Vision. And it was there that I met just wonderful, fantastic individuals, um, but particularly one uh, whose um, discipleship changed my life. And he was actually my boss. Mm. <laughs> he was my boss at Procter & Gamble. And but I would watch him, uh, and I, I would I would notice just something different about him. We're incorporating a very competitive, very competitive world, right? Uh, very stressful world. He never would he would never use profanity. He never put people down, and just in general, he was never stressed out and yelling. Okay, he he had this peace and joy that surpasses understanding. And I always wonder, what does he have? I want some of that. Uh, <laughs> And so Steve became my friend and my spiritual mentor. And uh, and in one uh, at one point, we went together to m my first uh, Promise Keepers conference a long time ago. And, and Michael, I'll never forget walking into that arena. It was actually in Dallas. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with Promise Keepers and their ministry, but back then they were very active and there were an, over 10,000 at that conference, over 10,000 men in one place, singing, praying, yes. listening to Bible-based speeches and presentations of how to apply scripture to their, their daily lives. And I'm like, I'm, I'm like a sponge just soaking all that in. I'm like, wow, this is cool on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm like, this is really weird. Okay? I've, never, <laughs> I've never seen so many people, so many men together praying, worshiping. Some of them were like raising their hands. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, and because uh, it was all new to me. And, and, and was this before this was before you gave your life to Christ? This was where I gave my life to Christ. Uh, That's right. And so it was yeah. just before it was just before that. So I never felt so out of place. I I I I grew up uh, knowing about Jesus, but he really wasn't a part of my a part of my life. And also the traditions were different in the in the in the sort of uh, Christian tradition that I grew up in. And so this was very different. I felt I I felt out of place. And at one point I was starting to wonder, what am I doing here and looking for the exit door? Like, I gotta get out of here. And it was at around that precise moment that the worship band started to play a song, a song that I had never, ever heard in my life. But I tell you this, it touched every nerve in my body. I felt chills and uh, I still do when I think about it. You may be familiar with the song is, here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. And so right there, I'm in the middle of this arena with 10,000 people. And I, that song starts and I start to yield. I just started, I felt like I was yielding uh, my burdens, um, everything I was yielding. yielding. And uh, there I was <laughs> in, the, in the company of 10,000 strangers uh, with tears rolling down my face because I realized in that moment with that song, 
that truly I had never, ever bowed down to Christ with honest humility. I had never, ever really worshiped God with all my heart, mind, and soul. And so I can't really explain what happened in that moment other than to say that it was there that the Spirit of God just met me in a powerful way. I surrendered my life to Christ and asked Him to take control. And well, as they say, the rest is history. Everything in my life changed after that. Everything. I led my family differently. I approached my job differently. And, and obviously started going much deeper and deeper in our relationship with Jesus. So that was an, those, those were important events in my life, meeting my boss at PNG and going to the Promise Keepers Conference. Yeah, there's, there's, we could just spend all day like talking about so many of the things that you just shared. But I, uh, and, and I do want to, because I think like this part of your story and this surrender and this powerful conversion experience, giving your heart to Jesus is such an important part of the leadership that you bring to World Vision. So I want to ask you about that in a moment. But yeah, I was just reflecting a little bit, Edgar, as you were sharing on just the power of with your mentor that it was a life just well-lived in front of you right. that was such a compelling part of uh, eventually your introduction to giving your heart to Christ. Absolutely. He was he was witnessing uh, the power of the gospel in words and life and, uh, and deeds, right? The whole thing in front of me. And that's, that was a wonderful thing, a, a tremendous gift. Yeah. And then picking back up to you mentioned that there was this call, uh, this uh, invitation uh, to come after this uh, many years, like you said, that you had in the corporate world and this opportunity comes up at World Vision and surrender is a big part of your story. Uh, I want to ask you, did you surrender right away? Uh, was this something that was, did you have a little bit of a, a back and forth with the Lord over it? We definitely wrestled. We wrestled. <laughs> we wrestled with the, with the Lord. And uh, I think I wrestled more than my wife did. Um, and, and there's I guess um, partly there was a good reason for it. We had we were living in Cincinnati, Ohio. I was uh, I had spent 20 years at the Procter and Gamble company. I had a comfortable, predictable life. But more important than that, um, so as background, I'm the father of four children. So my wife and I have four children. Two of them have special needs, mm. and so we had we have been able to build a very strong support system for our two girls with special needs and. The last thing I thought about was kind of like uprooting both two of them and, and the support system and then moving all the way to the Pacific Northwest, which is where um, World Vision's office at, our, at headquarter, headquartered. And so I just thought it was too much for them. And so I at one point went to my wife, Lisa, and I said, honey, um, you just need to say the word. And I put an end to this search process with World Vision. Um, and she, uh, I thought, I, I think that was part of my own twisted plan to get her to say no so that I didn't have to say no, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I get it. Yeah. And she just kind of like looked at me and said, Edgar, if the Lord wants us to go to the World Vision, we will. And he will provide. He always has and he always will. And so I'm like, okay, well, that didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. But after that, after that conversation, Michael, my wife and I made a commitment to get into a, a discernment posture 
and it was everything from um, prayer, worship, fasting, uh, the advice of friends, of loved ones, and that was at about that was about a three to four month period. And what I can tell you, maybe that's a this is a topic for another podcast. What I can tell you is that <laughs> the Lord unequivocally, unequivocally told both of us, I want you to go to World Vision. And when the Lord calls, we follow. So we said, here we are, send us. And it's been now almost uh, seven years here at World Vision. And it's been, it's been amazing. I, I, the last thing I'll say is we thought we were coming to give a lot about, of us, right? Give a lot to the ministry, help the children that are so vulnerable and so poor. And while all of that is true, what we have received in return in walking with the poor and the oppressed, well, it's Matthew 25 just coming to life in our lives. So we have been as transformed as the communities and the children and the, and the families that we're seeking to transform as well. That's so awesome. Look what God can do with a life surrendered. Um, Amen. Well, and that's a great uh, segue into where I, where I wanted to go next, which is just these past seven years uh, in your story. It, it is amazing how much time has really flown, and uh, you're doing such an incredible job there. But picking up on just really the leadership that you're bringing to World Vision and the emphasis that you're even placing around spiritual formation and, and all, and I want to get there. Um, but even just seeing the impact at World Vision, and I think about an organization that you're serving at that has such an incredible legacy. There's this history of taking action, even if it wasn't popular. And I think uh, as I was just looking even on your website, you, you all use the phrase being dangerously soft-hearted, but just the right kind of dangerous. <laughs> so yeah. I did want to be sure to, when I have this opportunity to visit with you, you know, how does being dangerously soft-hearted play a role in the work of a Christian humanitarian organization like World Vision? Tell us a little bit about that with your leadership. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd have to go back to, to our history as a ministry, right? Um, as you mentioned, we do have a history of taking action even when he wasn't popular. No, sometimes when he was popular, but even when he wasn't popular. I'll give you some examples that were not popular. Uh, for instance, in the 1970s, helping refugees flee in Vietnam by boat in the 1970s, uh, and nobody wanted to take them in. Or later in the 90s, responding to the AIDS pandemic in Africa, when the church in America wasn't really interested. Um, and more recently, caring for uh, Muslim refugees in Syria, and in the Middle East, uh, there's others, but these are all, what they all have in common is that they're dangerous situations in very challenging contexts. Um, and, and we continue today, so this is, that was in the past, but today we continue to operate in some of the world's toughest places. So that will be the dangerous part of it, if, if, if you like. But also then uh, our founder, Bob Pierce, he was an evangelist who prayed this prayer consistently and constantly. Let my heart be broken, Lord, with the things that break your heart, right? And so having a broken heart, that's the soft-hearted part of, uh, of, of, of call it our description of world vision, dangerously soft-hearted and just the right kind of dangerous. Um, our, I would say that that prayer, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. We have over 30,000 staff around the world, and they continue to pray that prayer. I pray that prayer. In, in chapel with our staff. We, want, we really want our hearts and we want our donors' hearts to stay tender to the needs in the world. And that's how we continue to be used by God and to be instruments for His miraculous impact. So that's a little bit about the dangerously 
stop heartache. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that you continue, Edgar, to bring that um, principle into your own life, into the life of your team, and just continue. I think there is such power in that, that um, that we keep that right spirit, you know, before the Lord and that we allow him to lead us in that way and where uh, he can break our hearts in all the right ways. Um, but how do you, on a on a practical level, because there's so much like busyness in ministry, there's all the things that we're doing, maybe it can become really routine. Like how does that go beyond just a routine, uh, a routine part of our life? And how does that become like a meaningful prayer, practically speaking, on a day-to-day basis, just praying that God continues to keep our heart soft in all the right ways? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with, I, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. I don't think we can um, claim that we are trying to transform communities overseas, et cetera, et cetera, unless we are willing to ourselves at the individual level step into a transformative relationship um, in Christ. And so uh, my, my very first day as president of World Vision, I, I made an appeal to our staff and I said, we need to yield back to the Promise Keepers experience. I want all of us to keep yielding to the transformative power of the Holy Spirit to do His work in each one of us. And, uh, and so that, that has become, is, is what I call it my presidential imperative, is to build and strengthen the spiritual formation of our staff so that we can have transformed hearts and therefore we can be you know, worthy ambassadors uh, of Christ to help transform the world. The world. And so and it, starts with, it starts with how we uh, spend our time, personal time at home, time with, time with the Lord, there's, we have continued to have devotions at World Vision, um, chapels, et cetera, et cetera. So it's making our, our relationship with Christ in our, our own sanctification process the priority, because it is only then that we can be equipped to do the work that God has before us. And that's, that's one of the things that we're trying, continuing to do at World Vision. Well, I can't say amen big enough, and I think that's where uh, I just have so much respect for you. And Edgar, you've even shared that story with our own team at ECFA and have given us, so we're going behind the scenes a little bit, you've shared some of that in our own devotions, and that's been an inspiration and encouragement to our team. Uh, but tell us, what was the reaction? You know, I'm just trying to imagine you're in that first service and you're unveiling like some of these <laughs> major priorities. Yeah, what was the reaction of your staff whenever you shared about that value? It was, uh, there was a tremendous sense of, of just excitement, and it continues today. In fact, I, um, I, I, I asked, as part of my, of my appeal was to yield, and when we yield, it, you know, we'll, we'll see God's miraculous impact. We will see, we will be stepping into the miraculous by yielding to the, to the transformative power of the Holy Spirit, and we'll see that the, the transformation in the communities in God's hand it, through a whole new lens. And, and so we, we open up our meetings uh, talking about uh, stories of transformation that we're seeing, not just in the, in, in, in the communities where we work, but w- transformation of donors. Um, and so it's become almost like this um, theme or currency that gives us inspiration. Is are, we, are we 
seeing our own trans are we are we rejoicing in our own transformation and what other transformations are we are we witnessing that give us just energy and excitement to keep fighting the good fight for for the ministry yeah and i was going to ask what fruits you know have you seen in the ministry or what have you seen change as you all as staff members, you know, have made that uh, just a really front and center priority. I'm not saying it wasn't there before, but yeah. uh, as you've made it more intentional and a priority, like what fruits have you seen within the ministry and how has that led to some some really cool change, I'm sure? Yeah, well, the, the, the fruits are, are so, so many. <laughs> but but, but well, I think what I, what I will start is by saying that we we understand that God has a design for the world, and bringing the world in alignment with God's design is really what our ministry is all about, right? And so, um, we, for, let's take, for instance, extreme poverty. We believe that ending extreme poverty starts with uh, restoring relationships, okay? Restoring relationships between each one of us and God. Um, let's see, between... Uh, um, husbands and wives, between parents and children, between families and communities and communities with governments. All that is needed for interventions to be sustainable. Um, and, and so that, that is at the core of our Christian identity. That's what we believe. That's what we believe to be true. And so whenever we go to any, we start any communities, any, any work, let's give you, for example, we don't put a single water well, we don't do anything until we see relationships beginning to heal and relationships beginning to, 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 to become stronger. Because what good is it for, um, let's say, for a farmer to multiply his farm's income if he then is going to go spend it in alcohol and other, and other things, right, that are as opposed to spending it on his children's education. And so everything we do, I think, as you said, this is not a new concept, uh, but we just... I guess we put a, a magnifying glass on it, and it, it, it is given us that uh, renewed excitement to see, truly to be used by God, to see His plan. It's not our plan. To see God's plan, God's design um, materialized in the world. That's good. Well, and you all have been such a leading force in that. Um, and I wanted to ask, too, what would you tell other leaders who are listening to, and maybe they have the same sense at their organizations, you know, we're, we're so blessed today at ECFA to have over 2,600 members all across the country and ministering around the world and so many different types and sizes of ministries and all, but really the core that holds us all together is that evangelical identity, our identity in Christ. But maybe there's some other leaders who are listening and they've been in organizations that have been around for a really long time and they're sensing that maybe some of that has slipped a little bit or they want to, mm -hmm. in your words, put the magnifying glass back on it. Like what what advice do you have from your own experience and leadership? What would you tell them? Yeah, I'd say a couple of things. It's a great question, Michael. I'd say a couple of things. First, go back to your mission statement. Go back to the, the DNA of the organization. Why were you established to begin with? Um, I'd like to say that, back to the fruits question, I'd like to say that the fruits are in the roots, right? And our fruits are for, for World Vision, they're in the church. We were founded by a uh, youth pastor. And so we, we've got to keep going back to, to the roots go back in, 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 in a more practical way to the mission statement. For World Vision, our mission statement has stood the test of time and is still our guide today. In fact, more so today, and I'll get to that in a minute, more so today than ever. 
And uh, our mission statement, it's, it's just a beautiful statement. It says that World Vision is an international partnership with Christians whose mission is to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in working with the poor and the oppressed to promote human transformation, seek justice, and bear witness to the good news of the kingdom of God. That is the mission statement, and we, um, like any well-run organization, are relentless about going back to that mission statement. And um, what I talked about in terms of transformation and yielding to the Holy Spirit and then being witnesses for God, it's all centered on, on that mission statement. Um, so that's the, that's the first thing I would say. Go back to your mission statement. That's where you'll find the inspiration. You will find the history. And really, really the inspiration to live out that history, that DNA, just simply in the modern world. It's, that's all there is. I'll give you another example. Um, we just we recently changed our child sponsorship model, right? And uh, for those who are fami not familiar with child sponsorship, child sponsorship, you normally would get a folder with a picture folder of a child who, who is uh, looking to be sponsored by someone. And then you raise your hand and say, I'd like to sponsor that child. Well, we flipped the script on that. And we said, well, from now on, um, the sponsor is not going to choose the child. We're going to flip it. The child is going to decide who the sponsor is. And so now instead of uh, photos of children uh, in picture folders, we ask potential sponsors to take their, their photos with their families. We gather all those photos, and we take them with us to, to the communities where we work. And there we have a big party where the children come. They scan the different photos on the wall, and they choose um, they choose who's going to be their sponsor. And it's just such a simple uh, switch, but it's so powerful. Uh, and what I can tell you is uh, this is oftentimes probably the first decision those children have been able to make on their own in some of the communities where they work. But back to the, to the DNA point and to the mission, we, we've always believed in the inherent di uh, dignity of children to change their world. It's what World Vision was founded on. We believe in that, in that inherent dignity. And so all we're doing is we're giving it a modern expression, a different expression, but it's the same, it's the same set of beliefs. Every, every child, every human being created in God's image. Okay, the, the, the last thing I'll say is there is no more urgent time, in my opinion, than right now to live out your Christian identity, your Christian mission. In yes. the his, in the la, at least in the last 800 years, in fact, I would I would always say I'm, I would say ever, and I'm going to give you three statistics. There's um, there's 85 million people displaced today. 85 million people displaced today in the world, um, in in refugees or in 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 other places, in refugee camps or in other places, displaced, forced out of their homes, never. It is, is the largest number in the history of the world. There is 274 million people today in need of humanitarian aid, some sort of humanitarian aid and support, the largest number in history. There's 45 million children in, that are on the brink of famine and starvation, the largest ever. And you just look around. Uh, you don't have to go across the pond. You can, you can look just around here in your communities, the need, right? People are hurting, people are suffering. And now is the time, this is our time, I like to say, to bring the hope of Christ to every hurting heart. Now is the time.
Amen. Yeah, no, those statistics are so compelling. You know, these are urgent times, but it does come back to just some fundamental, you know, truths and just like you said, remembering uh, our identity first and foremost, that has to be formed in Christ. Uh, but yeah, maybe the manifestation as an organization, it's got to look different, you know, than it did decades ago when we were when we were founded as our organizations. And uh, I might just ask you one other behind the scenes question about that, going back to something that you said, Edgar, too, which is in this discernment process around the mission, because I think this could be really helpful for some other people who are listening. Can you give us a little bit of the behind the scenes, if you will, about what that process looked like and the discernment and how did you go about that? I'm imagining that was with your board and yes. just tell us a little bit about that process. Yeah, we're, we're, we, I would say we are always discerning and surrendering our will and our plans to, to the Lord. But we've never done it, at least since I've been at World Vision, with more intentionality and with more passion and with more, I don't know, just uh, commitment than over the last two years with the situation with COVID. Right, which has completely changed the world. And so we took that opportunity to ask ourselves, Lord, what are you doing in the world? Um, what are you how are you trying to gain, get our attention? And what should we let go of, change? What, um, what paradigms do we, need to, do we need to change? And uh, it, was, it was, without a doubt, the most uh, intense, and, and deep discernment process that the board of directors and, this, and my senior leadership team undertook together. And what I can tell you is that there were some, um, we, we walked out of that exercise. Um, it took us several days. We walked out of that experience, that exercise, which is a renewed commitment to what I just said, to live the mission, but to live it with a modern application. It was it, things like uh, the fact that we also serve in, in the U.S. We have a ministry in the U.S., which is not as well known as our international ministry. We have a ministry in the U.S., and the U.S. was going through a very challenging time as well, perhaps more challenging than other parts of the world during COVID. And so we, we, um, we came alongside with our indispensable partner, churches and pastors here in the U.S. to um, bring hope and to distribute meal kits and, uh, and PPE equipment and other things. And we saw our U.S ministry just explode in terms of being a blessing right here at home. Uh, that's one example. Another example is we doubled down on our um, water and sanitation uh, sector. We are now bringing, uh, we have a vision to bring clean water to everyone, everywhere we work by the year 20, 2030. Uh, and, to, and we're now uh, stepping into also uh, a, a wonderful program called Economic Empowerment for people to understand that they were created in God's image, to understand that God wants them uh, to live prosperous lives, that he, he wants them to be productive contributors to, uh, to their own well-being. And uh, it, so everything is undergird by the Word of God. And we're seeing just some tremendous success in families that are lifting themselves out of extreme poverty in some of the most challenging places around the world. All of that and more came out of a discerning exercise of, Lord, what are you doing in the world today, and where can we join you in what you're doing? Wow. Well, we are cheering you on. We are praying you on. <laughs> pray, praying you on. We're praying for you uh, in those efforts. My goodness. Um, 
like you said, that the times are urgent and what great opportunities, even in the midst of challenges in these last couple of years. And so, you know, we just cheer that on. And I want to come back to something, too, that you said earlier, Edgar, which was, you know, the founder of World Vision was a youth pastor and uh, coming back, my goodness, to, to this theme of surrender and what God can do uh, with a life surrendered. World Vision is an example of that. But I also wanted to take the opportunity, and you and I have talked about this, too, World Vision is such a blessing and a part of ECFA's own legacy. Many people think that, oh, ECFA, you know, it must have been founded by CPAs and lawyers and tax people. Um, But it was really these mission-minded folks like those who are at World Vision that answered the call at a really critical time and uh, was really this genesis of ECFA being formed as uh, a peer accountability group, those that valued the importance of stewardship. And they said, we have to, uh, in the words of John Wesley, give the world the right impression of God when it comes to our finances and governance and fundraising. So I just want to take this opportunity to say uh, thank you uh, even today for for that blessing that World Vision has, has been and is in the in the life and ministry of ecfa well thank you michael and and you're right um as i look back at the at the players that had the vision for the ecfa i understand two of my predecessors at, uh, at world vision a uh, couple of presidents dan Moonham, uh ted engstrom yes. working alongside billy graham evangelistic uh, organization in the 1970s more there's, there's more names 25 to 30 leaders from uh, evangelical organizations decided to discuss fundraising practices and accountability, and that led to the formation of the ECFA. And to your point that this is, and so what does that do? If the fruits are in the roots, right? And the roots are precedents who put accountability, financial accountability as a priority. Well, I'm doing this now. For me, the ECFA is, is a critical, is a critical organization as a precedent I make sure to also make it a priority for me and for my staff, because that's the example that presidents need to set, just like my predecessor set that example back in the 70s. At the end of the day, what we're trying to do is is to live, is to be witnesses. Uh, and in our case, we, you know, we take a, a scripture from 2 Corinthians 8.21, right? We are taking great pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. So we want transparency and, uh, and accountability, and we want to learn from it and get better so that we can be um, uh, worthy witnesses of, the, of, of our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's so good. As you're quoting that verse from Second Corinthians, Edgar, I was resisting the urge not to quote it right alongside you. <laughs> <laughs> because that's just such a key verse that we often come back to at ECFA, taking pains to do what is right, not only in the, the eyes of God, but also in the eyes of man. Yes. Um, so well said. And I want to pick up on, too, something that you said, too, which is, yeah, in the eyes of man. Uh, and and you were mentioning the importance of stewardship really coming back to the witness that we're giving to those who are in the world around us. You know, tell us a little bit, what has been the reaction? I mean, I know this has been an important part of World Vision's DNA and history over the years. You're carrying that into your leadership today. What is the reaction to donors, right, as you work really hard to demonstrate financial accountability and stewardship? What do you see that reaction being in the eyes of man as, as people are looking on to that value at World Vision? 
Well, it's critical, it's foundational. Donors expect financial accountability. It, it's an expectation today. And, and it is also a critical element of building trust. Uh, and trust is the currency that we operate uh, with, right? And so uh, it, is, it is foundational. And for us, um, yes, of course we want to gain our donors' trust, but it starts even deeper than that. We believe that the resources that donors are giving us, they're not our own resources. In fact, we believe God has entrusted those resources to us through our donors. We believe that everything is God. Everything belongs to God. And so we're trying to do the best job to steward God's resources. Uh, stewardship is one of our core values, is in our core values documents. It impacts everything that we do, um, as I said, because it's so critical for, tr for trust. Uh, donors expect it, but frankly, we're stewarding God's resources. Now, what I, the, the one thing I'll say also about stewardship is that it's not just about avoiding wasteful spending or, or eliminating wasteful, wasteful spending. It is really about directing resources towards more and more impactful spending, uh, spending that will deliver on the mission at a, at, a, at a reasonable cost and always getting better. And so donors expect it. It builds trust. And... Uh, and we have a huge responsibility in storing God's resources because they're God's resources. Yes, 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 and yes <laughs> to all of what you and, just said. And I'm, exci and I'm excited to say that, you know, we also um, are watched. We, I am excited to say that we have people watching us and keeping us accountable. I think that's good. Accountability is biblical, right? So no problem. Uh, how can we be better? Yeah, absolutely. And Edgar, speak speak to a moment to other CEOs, uh, executive directors, and maybe even senior lead pastors who are listening to this conversation today, because I think one of the uh, mindsets that, that sometimes we get in as, as the senior staff leader is, oh, well, the financial operations or stewardship, that's maybe for the, the CFO or the CPAs who are on our team, which, you know, we we love and we cheer on. I mean, those are our people too here at ECFA, but there is something just really powerful that happens when the senior leader also embraces this value. And it's not something that you just expect someone else to do, but I can tell even just from some of the words you shared and lessons and takeaways that this is something that you really embrace and you model. So speak to other leaders who may be listening and why is it so important for them to dial in on these issues as well? Yes. Um, I will say that there's, there's a few things that leadership must set the tone and, because, and, and, and make a priority within the organization. Um, and those choices happen at the, board, at the boardroom level in, 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 my, in my experience. Um, there's probably more than the ones that I'm going to mention, but I would say for us, uh, things like stewardship, priority, safeguarding, priority. Uh, diversity, priority, impact, priority. And, um, and so what I will say is when it comes to stewardship, um, I've learned exactly what you're saying, Michael, which is uh, stewardship and financial accountability is everyone's job. It's not the, it's not the CFO, it's not the, uh, the CPAs. They can support, the, 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 they, they can help us create the right systems. But at the end of the day, what I would encourage folks is, uh, and leaders is to create a culture a culture of stewardship, a culture of doing the right, harder thing, uh, which is what we, uh, the right thing, which is what we have built and want to keep at World Vision. 
It's a culture of stewardship. It's a culture of the words. It's a culture of safeguarding. It's a culture of innovation. It's a culture of impact. Those are the foundations upon which organizations can then flourish, flourish in a, in a Christ-honoring way. Yeah, and you said something too that was really key, which is just that value of tone at the top. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's really important, Edgar, because there's no one else who can yield that level of influence or step into those shoes that right. that tone that needs to come from the board or it needs to come from the senior leader. There's there's no one else in the organization that can do that. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Good. Well, something else that you said too, I want to, uh, I just picked up on, and that is when you're talking about culture and your values that even diversity was one of those. And I appreciate that you've been a champion for that. And uh, that's something that all of us as leaders, you know, I think we're dialed into, especially in these times. Uh, but tell us a little bit about the, the thinking behind that value, but also I think there's this real opportunity that within Christ-centered organizations that uh, the Christian identity and who we are uh, as organizations rooted in Christ, how does diversity look uh, different in our context, or how does the Christian identity shape just the importance of even that value? I think that would be so helpful for you to share. Oh, absolutely. And, and diversity is one of those subjects that I'm just passionate about and joyful about, because I think uh, it's wonderful work. Um, just as, as a way of background, one of our core values, another one of our core values, in addition to valuing stewardship, is at World Vision, we value people. And uh, that, that value guides us to act in ways that respect the dignity. I talked about dignity before of the children, but dignity of our staff, the uniqueness of our staff, the intrinsic worth of every person, staff or non-staff, donor, everyone, respect it. Um, and, and act in ways that show that respect of dignity, uniqueness, and intrinsic worth. Uh, but also to celebrate the richness of diversity in, in human personality, cultures, contributions, races, et cetera, et cetera. This, this core value um, is a deeply held belief that is grounded in scripture, right? Because we believe, as the word of God says, that every human being is created in the image of God. So we are all his image bearers. You are created in the image of God, and so am I, and so is every human being that we come in contact with. Now, so that's one, one plank. The next one is that as Christians, we are God's instruments, right? We're God's instruments. The Bible says that. Well, we're God's instruments for thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that daily, okay? Well, Jesus said, this is how you should pray to the Father, because he knew and we know that when people experience the power of God's heavenly kingdom on, on earth, well, their eternal destiny changes. And I would say that scripture also gives us a glimpse for that kingdom of heaven. Revelation 7, 9 says, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's a vision of this heavenly kingdom that we are praying for will come to earth, okay? So when we pray for the kingdom of heaven to come to earth, we're also praying for the beauty and unity of the diverse body of Christ right here on earth. In other words, diversity is in our heavenly destiny, but why wait? Why wait? So as president, one of my imperatives is to build a more diverse employee and donor base. I want every single staff member, every single one of them, feeling valued and contributing to their fullest potential. I'd say well beyond being included 
I want them feeling a strong sense of belonging. Um, and, and while we have more work to do, like most organizations, I am proud of the work that we're doing and of the progress we're making. And I think we're going to continue to make more progress, Michael. But those are the Christian foundations, in my view, uh, or some of them for our diversity efforts at World Vision. I think that is so helpful. And I appreciate you taking just a, a couple minutes there to share that biblical basis. And um, my goodness, yeah, just to have the the view of what could be, the vision of what could be. Uh, and like you said, there's no reason to wait until we get to heaven. <laughs> Let's do it now. I think that's so a good. Kingdom call, a kingdom come on heaven as it is on earth, right? On earth as it is on heaven, sorry. Yeah, that's right. Well, we could be here all day, and I would enjoy that. <laughs> I would enjoy the opportunity to continue the conversation. Um, but I do want to, as we come to a close in our time, is at ECFA, our mission, as you know, is all about enhancing trust in Christ-centered yes. churches and ministries. We talked about the legacy that's behind that, but also the ongoing work of trust building that continues to this day. And you shared something earlier about World Vision and your program with Chosen, and that is where the sponsored children really get to choose their sponsor. And I like the words that you used, Edgar, which is you flip the script. Uh, and so um, with this question regarding trust that I have, I think it'd just be good if we could flip the script on trust, if you will. And uh, ECFA's mission is enhancing trust to the giver and the watching world. We talked about that. Uh, but I want to flip the script and ask you, really focusing more on building trust with those who we want to help, um, is there a specific way to give aid in so much of the work that we're doing as organizations that actually builds trust with those that we're trying to help? So not necessarily trust in our organizations, but flipping the script on building trust with those that we're trying to help. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What are your thoughts and how do we keep that trust once we've built it? It's a, it's a very important question, Michael. And I like to say that our work is um, kind of like two sides of the same coin. On the one side is the donor trust. And the other side, there's the community trust. But they're, they're, it's all about trust. We, we cannot empower communities to lift themselves out of poverty unless they trust us to, um, to work with them. And so, and so trust is not only critical with donors, but also with the communities we serve. And we consider working in, in the places where we do, which are the most vulnerable places around the world, we consider it an honor to serve in those places. And yes, they're very difficult. They're very difficult places where communities are experiencing very challenging circumstances. But we go in with a, we want to partner with you, not here's what you need to do. No, we want to partner with you. I wanna, I wanna bring this, this example of partnership to life by using our child sponsorship work. Um, the first thing I'll say is over 98% of our staff around the world is indigenous to the communities where we work. Okay, so this is not some you know, international external organization coming to try to create relationships. Our staff live in the communities where they work. They have built-in credibility, okay? And they have built-in trust as a result of that. When it comes to child sponsorship, two, even two years before sponsorship begins in a community, our staff, this indigenous staff of World Vision um, staff members, they work hand in hand with community leaders, local pastors, families, and other partners to identify and agree. They need to agree 
what are the needs? What are the priorities? What is the dream that you have for your children? That's the question we ask. What, what, are your children, what do you want for your children? Uh, we also invite uh, churches to help identify say, critical issues that are facing the entire community, and we invite them to be part of the solution. Um, as it relates to focusing primarily on the most vulnerable children, the selection of which children participate in sponsorship is a respectful process that happens in partnership with the community. In fact, uh, vulnerable children, the most vulnerable that meet the criteria, are nominated by their own community members and, and by their local staff. Uh, and then uh, parents or guardians will sign a consent form for their children to become registered in the program, and they can withdraw their children at any time for any reason. All those things, that process, all those things, just they're built on supporting, enabling, uh, and instilling trust in the entire process. So that's one example of, of our child sponsorship program. But I can I can give you similar examples for for wash, for water sanitation and hygiene, and many of the other sectors that we that, uh, that are part of our ministry. No, that is good. And what do you see as the power of the trust that's built? You know, with those well, communities that you're serving, what's what's the power behind the trust that's built there? Well, it's. Uh, it's the power of ownership. It's the power of ownership and it's the power of uh, accountability. Uh, and so by building trust, they, they get to understand and believe that we want also the best for them. <laughs> and so they're, you know, communities are more willing to uh, follow best practices that is, is part of the, uh, the World Vision um, ministry is some of the things that we've learned for 70 years on how to overcome extreme poverty. And so it's like you're a friend wants, wants to come alongside you, not an, a big you know, international NGO. It's a, it's, a, it's a group of friends. It's a group of your own community members who happen to work for this organization. And so uh, the, the power of trust is critical to the implementation and the follow-through on the best practices to, to do the ministry that we do and to have the impact that we aspire to have in the children. That's so good. The other thing that I picked up too, Edgar, you didn't use these words exactly, uh, and ho hopefully uh, this is a good summary, <laughs> but this is just what I was reflecting on as you were sharing is there's such humility in that process. And right. really, as an organization, um, it can be tempt tempting sometimes for us to think like, maybe even not consciously, but like that we're somehow the hero of the story. But I think what I hear you say is like, we're just constantly thinking about the real heroes in this story are those who we're serving. Absolutely, without a doubt. They, we are there to uh, provide them the tools, uh, the best practices, the guidance, but in the end, they are determining what they want for the children and they work really hard, just like you and I would for our children to provide. And, and that's, that's been the other thing that I would highlight here is hardworking communities who are simply, um, all they need is somebody to believe in them. And so when, you know, when, when, when our donors uh, take their hard-earned mo money and, and send it to World Vision, they need to know that they are putting, um, they're giving people an opportunity to lift themselves out of poverty. And yes, sometimes, uh, well, here's what I will say about, about the question about how do I help? I would say, uh, money is a good thing. It's a good way for you to help. It's a good way because at World Vision, we have 
uh, a tremendous amount of knowledge and expertise on how to overcome poverty, but we just don't have, even though we're relatively speaking larger than many other organizations, the need is greater than the resources that we have. So when you entrust the money to World Vision, you, you, you should be um, confident that we are working to steward that donation, to help the most vulnerable, lift themselves out of poverty, and that we want to be accountable to each and every one of every donor that we have. That's exactly right. Wow. Well, this has been such a good conversation. <laughs> um, and I know we'll have to have you back on the podcast and pick back up on some of these themes, but the power of partnership, you know, trust that uh, really links us strongly together, uh, staying true in our identity in Christ and that ongoing hard work of spiritual formation. There's been so many things, plus getting just to hear a little bit more about your story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I know we've hit on a lot of things, Edgar, but is there anything else that you'd like to share with those who are listening, either about World Vision or just staying in touch? Anything else that you'd like to share? Well, maybe maybe one last thing is uh, to tell you about is how we build and maintain trust, back to trust, with our most important partners, and that is the local churches, right? So we, from the highest echelons of denominational church leadership to the most humble pastors serving communities from their, you know, we call them their, their grass hut churches. World Vision seeks to serve the church. We have seen it for 70 years, how pastors, priests, and other faith leaders uh, are intentional about, and they're, they're many times intentionally the first change agents in their communities for World Vision's best practices, which happen to be Bible-based programs, right? And these are programs like Channels of Hope, that uh, create reconciliation in communities or celebrating families, which create strong relationships between families, husbands and wives and parents and children to the biblical empowered worldview, which gives people the hope to lift themselves out of poverty. All of that, the first change agents that we work with, the church. And uh, in fact, in just 2021, we worked and, and trained over 130,000 Christian pastors, priests, uh, youth leaders, other Sunday school teachers around the globe. And so, we're building trust with the church because the church is our indispensable partner and we believe them to be God's redemptive force for good in the world. And by the way, they're going to be there serving their communities long after World Vision staff departs. So that's one big shout out to our partners on the ground. Yes. All right. Well, hey, we're right there with you. That's a great way to end it. And we see that as our mission, too, uh, is to really come alongside the church and their leaders and uh, even just great organizations, Edgar, like World Vision. So thank you for giving us the opportunity to serve and to partner alongside and just have a little part uh, in the amazing work that you all are doing around the world. Thank you. An honor. Thank you.